over, and the final three chapters are primarily application. This is not to say that there are not application issues in chapters one through three. Certainly there are, and we've studied them and we've made application of them. But then it's also not to say that chapters four through six Another way, God can do what it is not impossible to do. His power is unlimited and uninhibited. So God can do whatever is intrinsically possible to do. Or to put it another way, God can do what it is not impossible to do. Talk about that some more. The power 
Omnipotence does not mean that God can do what is contradictory. The scriptures affirm, Hebrews chapter 6, 2 Timothy 3, and Titus chapter 1, the scriptures affirm that God cannot contradict his own nature. God cannot contradict his own nature. So can, can God sin? Well, no, he can't sin. That doesn't mean he's not omnipotent, but that would contradict his own nature. God cannot force freedom, for example. Because if he forced freedom, then it wouldn't be freedom. So it would be a, a contradiction. So he cannot contradict his nature. He can't force freedom. He works persuasively, not coercively. Now, you've all heard it, so let me bring it up. Some, some skeptics like to ask questions like this, the, the gotcha kind of questions. Perhaps you've heard them. And then they'll ask something like this. Can your God, your God's supposed to be all-powerful, right? I say, well, yes, he's all-powerful. That means he's omnipotent, right? Yes, he can do anything, right? Yeah, well, can he, can he make a stone? Can he create a stone that's so heavy that he can't lift it? And, you know, we all scratch our head and say, well, yes. Well, then he can't lift it, so he's not omnipotent. Well, no. Well, then he can't create it, so he's not omnipotent. And they say, well, gotcha. Well, no, you don't got anybody because that's a contradiction. That's an absurdity, and God doesn't deal with absurdities. It's a logical absurdity. God doesn't deal in absurdities or contradictions like, can God make another God? You say he's all-powerful. Well, then can God create another God? Or can God sin? Or can, can God cause something at the same sense and in the same time to be and also not to be? To have been and not to have been. These are all questions of logical absurdity. And they're all deflections when people ask these questions. Generally, when people ask a question like that, they're not seeking knowledge. They're a skeptic trying to put you down with a misunderstanding of the Bible's representation of omnipotence. Because God can do whatever it is intrinsically possible to do. He's not going to contradict his nature. So you say, can God sin? No, he can't sin because he would contradict his holiness. But that has nothing to do with his almighty power. Can God... Can God coerce freedom? No, because it wouldn't be freedom. It would be a logical inconsistency. Can God make another God? No, because God is a first is a first cause. He's the first being. He's an uncaused cause. So no, he, he couldn't do that. But it doesn't mean that he's not omnipotent. Um, I call this approach that skeptics have the, the smart aleck approach to a discussion on reality. Some of you may have a more descriptive term than that, but that's the one that I'll use for tonight, the smart aleck approach to a discussion on reality, because they're skeptics. Actually, of all the people that disagree with Christianity, sometimes skeptics irritate me the most, but because they are a bit smart alecky sometimes, and I wonder if they're really searching for truth, but that's just me. But what we're, what we're interested in is what the reality of divine omnipotence is and how it relates to us and how it can provide incredible comfort to us. But I at least have to mention these things because they're going to throw them at you. And when somebody throws something like that at you, can God make a rock that is so heavy that he can't lift? Just say that's a logical absurdity. It's a contradiction. And, of course, God's not going to violate the law of non-contradiction. So, no, we're not going to talk about that, but let's talk about you. You see, what they're trying to do is they're trying to deflect the attention away from themselves and their own need, generally speaking, their own need for forgiveness and justification. When you see people doing that, 
that's exactly what they're doing, and you need to deflect that question to get right back to, uh, to them. It's very similar to, the, to those who will say, well, uh, you know, okay, you're giving me the gospel, but what about the people in Australia that never heard of the gospel? What about the ones that never heard of Jesus? Well, we can talk about them later, but what about you? You just heard about it. Now, what are you going to do about it? So we need to, to stay on point. We need to stay on subject. Omnipotence then is the, means that God can do what is intrinsically possible to do. He can do what it is not impossible to do. And it does not mean, omnipotence does not mean that God can do what is contradictory. Also, omnipotence does not mean that God will do all that he can do. Are you following? It doesn't mean that he will do all that he can do. Let me, let me see if I can illustrate this in, in a tangent way. You may have the right to do something. You may have, a, you have every right to do something. Let's, let's say somebody did something to you and you have the right to be angry about it. But you don't necessarily have to be angry about it. You see? You don't necessarily have to do all that you have a right to do. Does that make sense? And, and, and sometimes if you have a certain amount of class, you won't necessarily do everything that you have a right to do. That's called grace. It's called mercy. Well, in the same way, omnipotence does not mean that God has to do all that he can do. It simply means that he has the power to do whatever is possible, even if he chooses not to do some things. That's divine omnipotence. And just so you don't go out here thinking the wrong thing, that's, that's not me. That's not my argument. It really isn't. I would show you, but, but I, I, I can't do it right now. I, I got to think, some of you t take me seriously. It's a good thing somebody's not here tonight. She'd probably believe me, wouldn't she? <laughs> that's, not, that's, not the, that's not the case. God is, is not free. God is not free to use as omnipotence whenever he desires. God is free to limit the use of his power, but he's not free to limit the extent of his power. So he's not, he's not free in the sense of being able to use his omnipotence if it's going to contradict his nature. We know that. He's free to limit the use of his power, but God's not free to limit the extent of his power. Okay? Just because he says, I'm not going to do something, doesn't mean he's going to do it, but he can't say, I'm not going to be all-powerful. He, he, he is what he is, and he is all power, so he can't limit the extent of his power. I know this is a bit theological, but I think you can handle it, and it's very, very necessary for us to cover it. In the same way, God must know all that he knows, but God doesn't have to do all that he can do. Okay? He must know all that he knows, but he doesn't have to do all that he can do. Now, some of the biblical basis for um, omnipotence, the psalmist, for example, wrote in Psalm 115, 3, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Psalm 135, 6, again, the Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on earth, in the seas and all their depths. Isaiah 43, 13, Isaiah declared to the Lord, and there, and, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who will reverse it? I will work, and who will reverse it? Similar to Paul's thinking in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Line them up, but it's not going to happen. Jeremiah adds this, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm, hence the, the symbolism. Nothing is too hard for you. 
That's Jeremiah chapter 37, verse 17. In Jeremiah chapter 49, God asks, Who is like me? And who can challenge me? Isaiah 40 does the same thing. We read that not too long ago. And we've already seen in this letter, in this very letter of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 19, the surpassing greatness of his power. And Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 states that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus himself added his own testimony in Luke chapter 18, verse 27, when he said, with, uh, said what is impossible with men is possible with God. We need to understand that within the, within the entirety of the biblical framework, God can do whatever it is intrinsically possible to do. Mankind can, but God can. The actions of God imply omnipotence, beginning with creation out of nothing. Now, those who are in evolutionary biology, for example, they, they feel like they've got the answers. They, they think that they're the, um, the intellectual elite on the planet, and that those who are religious in any sense, but especially those who are religious in a Christian sense, are, are um, intellectual Neanderthals. I, I prefer to think of them on the other side, evolutionary biologists, as, as perhaps rep reptilian. Isn't that, the, isn't that the word <laughs> Berlinski used? But, but nevertheless, uh, they, they feel like they've got all these answers, but they don't. And e even if they did, even if they start with this single-celled organism or a pool of genetic material and say lightning hit it and and I'm really not exaggerating much by saying some, some sort of electrical charge hit it and then it, it developed this process that took place over billions and billions of years, I still have a question. Two, actually. Where'd the lightning come from? And where'd the intellectual or the, or the genetical pool come from? The, the primordial slime, or, the, or what I prefer to go. You, you still have that problem. That's one problem. The second is why? You know, how it got there, and then it, what's the purpose behind all this? So... Science does not have an answer for origins. They start with an origin, and then they work their way forward. So who's the intellectual dummy? It's not us. Now, I'm not saying that these people are smart, but the fool says in his heart there is no God. So you, can, you, know, you, you realize you can be a really, really smart fool, and sometimes, unfortunately, people are. It doesn't mean we need to shun them. It doesn't mean that we need to ridicule them. I'm really not, I don't mean to be doing that. It means we need to love them and be prepared with an answer for them. That's what we need. We don't need to run away from them. We need to be prepared with an answer for them. So the actions of God imply omnipotence, beginning with creation ex nihilio, out of nothing, and moving on to the various miracles that have been performed throughout the ages. Not to, not to mention just creation, but the parting of the Red Sea turning water into wine, and, and maybe even the greatest of all the uh, of the miracles, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, there are a couple other things theologically that we need to consider, and that is that, that omnipotence flows out of one of God's characteristics called pure actuality. Pure actuality. Now, we've studied this before, but let me remind you what it, what it means. Pure actuality means that God has no potentiality. If, we were to, if I was to tell you, you have no potential at all, it would be a great insult. But if, I was to, if God was here, if Jesus Christ was here, and I was to say, my Lord, you have no potential at all, he would say, you're right, Bruce, I don't have any potential. Because he is what he is to the, to the degree of infinity. He's got no room for improvement. 
Okay, that's another way to um, to bring pure actuality into regular folks' terms. What has no poten- what has no potentiality then has no limits at all, since potential is what limits a being. Thus, it follows that God has no limits of any kind. He is powerful, therefore, He is unlimited in His power, according to His nature, which He cannot violate. So that's pure actuality. But also, we, we come into the concept of infinity when it comes to God. Omnipotence flows from infinity. God is an infinite being. He possesses power, as indicated by the mighty acts that I just talked about. Creation being an incredible one, all the way down to, to the resurrection of our Lord. Whatever God has, that is, or that he is, rather, he is absolutely one. So whatever applies to him applies to his whole being. You see, God can't be perfect love and then imperfect power. He can't, you see, he can't be infinite. He can't be infinite in one aspect of his being and not infinite in another aspect. There's another aspect of, of theology that, where we say that God is a simple being. And that doesn't mean that there is no knock on God at all. It just means he's not divisible. Whatever he is, he's, he is to, to the fullest extent. We tend to look at God as some sort of pie when we look at God's essence or infinite perfection. And we study one of them at a time. Like tonight, we're taking a look at omnipotence. But really, that's not the way God is. You can't, you can't cut the piece of the pie omnipotence out and just study that because you can't study these attributes in isolation. Charles Ryrie said God is the sum total of his infinite perfections. And that was a definition that was well thought out because, because all these things work together. That's what makes some theological debates so frustrating sometimes because people will take out certain aspects of God's being like his love and they'll just study that. They'll emphasize that or his sovereignty and they'll emphasize that or his justice and they emphasize that. You can't do that or his holiness. All of it works together. So whatever applies to him applies to his whole being. He's infinite. That applies to every part. He's infinite love. He's infinite wisdom. He's infinite knowledge. He's everywhere present. There's, there's no, there are no boundaries to him. If God is infinite and powerful, if he's infinite and powerful, then he must be infinitely powerful. Now, omnipotence, then, is an important, and for me, it's a very comforting doctrine to know that if God's on my side, who can line up against me? We, we prayed for one of my very, very good friends in ministry tonight, and, and I, I'm, I'm extremely concerned for him and for his safety, but I do know this. If God lines up in front of him, and if he is a wall of fire between my good friend and your good friend and those who would mean to do him harm, then guess what? Nothing's getting through to him. And I have to know that if something gets through to him, God was very well aware of it, and he's got a greater plan for his glory that's going to work out of that thing. So I have a certain amount of comfort, and I pray for his comfort as well. Omnipotence is extremely comforting to me. A long time ago, I had a, a friend of mine who stepped in, and he helped take up for me when I was getting the tar beat out of me. Now, he wasn't omnipotent by any means. He wouldn't have even had a muscle like that fellow that I put up there just a little while ago, but he did know how to scrap. Well, it was, also, it was really, really comforting to me that for several weeks in a row, back when I was about 13 years old, he walked home with me. And I was comforted because I knew he was enough of a scrapper that at least between the two of us, they better bring a whole lot of people with them. 
Now, if I was by myself, it would have, I could have done something, but I'd have definitely gotten bloodied and bruised. But at least when with he was with me, I had no real problem at all. Well, if you just magnify that, and I remember the comfort that I had from that and the friendship, and to this day, I still love that gentleman and still talk to him from time to time. He's a, he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, if that's true on a human level, how much more true when we know the infinite, omnipotent God of the universe is on our side, and he goes with us. It doesn't mean that we sit down in the middle of the Gulf Freeway and say, God, you're omnipotent, make these cars going around me. And he's probably going to say something like, you're, you're so stupid, I'm not going to waste any more oxygen on you. I'm taking you on home before you, take, you, know, before you, before you cause an accident and hurt somebody else too. You know, we're not to tempt the Lord our God. It seemed like our Lord said that in, in his own temptations, didn't he, when Satan said, just throw yourself off. So that's not the way we do things. But I personally am very, very comforted by the doctrine of omnipotence. God's predictions and his promises are no better than his power to fulfill them. I might make you a promise or two from time to time, and I might have every intention of fulfilling it. And maybe I've done this with some of you at some point. And then I'd have to come later and say, hey, you know what? I wasn't able to do what I told you I would do. did everything I could, but I wasn't able to accomplish that. God's never going to do that. Never. He's never going to make a promise to you and then have to come later and say, you know, I wish I could have got you into heaven. But your father said, no, only 100 today can't, can't get you in. You know, that's not the way it works. What he has told you he's going to do, he's going to do, and he can do it. Now, there was, some, there was a book that came out quite a few years ago. I think they've already had the 25th anniversary edition uh, called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And many of you remember that title. It was written by a, a very fine man named Rabbi Harold Kushner. Now, Rabbi Kushner, at one time in his life, was, was fairly orthodox with regard to at least the essence of God. Some things happened to him with regard to his own family that disappointed him, things that, that he felt like God had lost control of, so he changed his way of thinking. And in Rabbi Kushner's book, essentially, it was a thesis, or was a statement of this thesis, and that is that God is the God of the universe, the God of the Old Testament in history, or the God of the Hebrew Bible, is, is all-loving. He is an all-loving God, and he wants the right things to happen. But he had to conclude, since sometimes bad things do happen to presumably good people, that God is not omnipotent. I mean, he's not able to carry out that which is his desire. And that's... Not a biblical concept, either Old Testament or New Testament. It's actually a very sad concept. So the doctrine of omnipotence is a very, very comforting doctrine. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think. This is the doxology. A doxology is something, it's a phrase or it's a, it's a group of sentences, perhaps it's a song sometimes, that ascribes glory to God. All real glory. All real glory in this universe belongs to God because God created the universe. When we sing the doxology on Sunday morning, we're beginning our service by recognizing that all praise and glory belongs to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful short hymn, and I think it's a wonderful way to start a service 
because it gets us all focused. Now, every now and then somebody said, I don't like the Holy Ghost part. Well, just try to get past that, would you? It's <laughs> <laughs> just old English for the, the, the Trinity. It's a great way to start a service. Very traditional way. It goes, has a tradition. goes way, way back. And so I hope the next time that we sing it, I hope that we'll sing it with vigor, recognizing that we're starting off by, by admitting that all praise goes to God. Every single bit of praise goes to God. He alone is worthy to be worshipped, and he alone is worthy to be praised. So that's what a doxology is. So Paul, in this segue, ending the prayer, but also ending the first three chapters, making a segue into the second three chapters, in this segue, Paul speaks about the omnipotence of God. God is able to do beyond all that we can ask or think. Now, in the specific context, in the real tight context, Paul likely has in mind the bringing of Jews and Gentiles into one body and having them function in unity. In terms of all above all we could ever ask or think, that's not as easy as what it might look like on the surface. So that may be the specific context. In his mind, in Paul's mind, Paul viewed the present situation of disunity within the body of Christ to be a huge problem, one worthy of turning over to God completely. Because Paul had to know his limitations. He could only be at one place at one time, and where if he would, when he would go to one place, he would seem like he had everything going real well, and then somebody would come behind him. As soon as he leaves, somebody would come behind him and say, Paul's a great guy, but. But what? But his theology is all messed up. So he had to be frustrated at some point, at least frustrated in a, in a positive way, so he's turning all this over to God. And he, he views this as a pretty big problem because he knew that no amount of human endeavor, even if he had a bunch of helpers with him, no amount of human endeavor would ever accomplish such what seems like an impossible task. But you see, it's not logically inconsistent, is it? It's not. It's not logically inconsistent at all for Jews and Gentiles to be able to get along. And it doesn't violate the law of non-contradiction. He's not trying for them to be and not to be in the same sense and at the same time. It is intrinsically possible for Jews and Gentiles to get along. It's humanly impossible to, to force that situation, but God can do it, and that's what this is about. In fact, his ability, Paul says, is infinitely beyond, or perhaps translated better, exceedingly beyond anything we can ask or think. Did you hear that? Anything we could ask or think. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got a pretty good imagination. I can think about a whole lot of things. In fact, I do think about a whole lot of things sometimes. And sometimes when I go away to foreign cities, I remember being in Kazakhstan in this city, Almaty, and I was thinking, you know, if the government would just put a lot of that oil money back, because they've got some of the largest new finds of oil in the world in Kazakhstan, if the government would put it back into Almaty, as I was riding through the streets on my way to the conference, this was 10 years ago, but as I was riding through the streets on my way to the conference, I would think about, well, you know, if, if I had all this money and I was in charge of, of this place, then what I would do is I would build, build a rail here. I would clean these streets up. I'd put these people to work. And, you know, it was, it was just kind of fun to think of things like that. I see you don't do that very often, but, but it was fun for me. It, was, it gave me something to do while I was sitting in traffic going. I've been to another city that I won't name, and I thought the same thing because they have a lot of money, and the, and the government, the people who operate the government, they typically take every bit of money that they can. They put it in an account in Switzerland, and as soon as they get caught, they go and have get asylum somewhere else and leave the people as poor as they can be. But you know what? In this other city, even on my best day, I couldn't think of a way 
put enough money into that other city so they even make it livable. And what I thought was, isn't it going to be great in the millennium when God cleans this whole mess up? But the, the point is, I've got a great imagination. So do you. And we can think of incredible things. You know what we do, I think, sometimes in our prayers? We shortchange God. We don't pray for enough sometimes. We need to be very bold in our prayers. We need to, we need to pray them more often. And we need to pray our prayers a lot bigger. And recognizing that he can answer them or he cannot answer them according to his will. But in terms of according to his power, if it's, lo- if it's not logically inconsistent, okay, then pray it. Be bold. Start giving him credit where credit is due. So now unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we can ask or think. I think Paul's saying, ask. Ask a little more and ask a little more boldly. As long as you're not asking him to create a rock so big that he can't lift, because that's a logical inconsistency. It's an absurdity. Don't get into the realm of absurdity. But don't be afraid to ask him to help you take care of that car payment. You know, sometimes we sometimes we just get so wrapped up with there's no way that that could be done. Yes, there's a way. Ask him. In this context, Paul's not speaking just of God's marvelous power, which is certainly in view. There's there's no question of that. But of his power to accomplish his will through us. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, beyond all we ask or think, according to or perhaps in accordance with or consistent with the power that works within us. Now this is huge. Because not only is God omnipotent, but you know that God indwells you. And God works through you. Now, just because he's working through you doesn't mean that he is now no longer omnipotent. Now, th- this, is not, this is not a cause for anyone to think, well, I have, a, I have the power of God working through me, so therefore I can put my hand on you, or I can just blow, a, you know, blow the Holy Spirit out through my mouth, and every one of you is going to get slain and lay in the streets. Now, that's not it. Or that I can go into... MD Anderson or St. Luke's and just wave my hand and clear out all the sick people and have them all walk out. You know, that never gets done, by the way. You know, that, that never happens. It happens on TV with people who have been selected. But as soon as they go down to MD Anderson, clear out all the cancer down there, down to St. Luke's, clear out all the heart conditions and the kidney problems, then we'll start maybe paying att- making a little more attention to that. But what I want to tell you, though, is that this one who can do exceedingly and abundantly all above all we could ask or think, in accordance with his power, that power is working within us. Again, in, in a strict context, this means that we have the ability, because God's working through us, in order to get along from a racial standpoint in the body of Christ. But it shouldn't be limited to that. It should not be limited. God is omnipotent working through you. Not to give you miracle working powers. That's not what this is saying. But it is saying that you don't have to be afraid of not having the ability to accomplish God's will. You don't have it by yourself. Let's admit that. But with him, yes, you do. And you've got, and it's exceedingly and abundantly above all we could ever ask or think. God's work will never be accomplished apart from divine enablement, but he does promise divine enablement when we're doing his will. Glory, in the second part here, glory, praise, and approbation are all aspects of worship and are all directed toward God. Now, worship 
is response to revelation. And so far we've had three chapters of incredible revelation about God. Now that we know, now that we know, now that it has been revealed that we have the, the uh, about God's omnipotence, about our responsibilities, about the fact of grace, now that we know all that, it's our responsibility to act accordingly. And we are never to manipulate praise to where it comes to ourselves. And that is a human tendency. All of us want to do it. And we, sometimes we do it real subtly. But we want, we want to hear it. But that's not the point here. We're never to manipulate praise toward ourselves, but toward its proper object. And who is the proper object? Well, verse 21, to him, to God, be the glory. I love that hymn, by the way. To God be the glory, great things he has done. To God be the glory. In the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, that pretty well covers it, I think. Now, all glory. All honor, all approbation should be directed toward him. To God be the glory. That's why it's so critical that we organize our worship services or worship events, if you will, in such a way as to shower all of our attention upon our creator. Too many today are in the entertainment mode. In I'm talking about in Christianity. Entertain me and I'm going to come. Or its cousin, perhaps just as bad, the serve me mode. You serve me and I'm going to come. You don't serve me in the way that I feel like I should be served. I'm out of here and I'm going to look for somebody else who's going to serve me in the way I feel like I should be served. Last time I looked, Jesus Christ himself said, I didn't come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Would that more of us would follow through with that as well. Glory is going to come to God or glory would come to God in the church for uniting, again in a specific context, for uniting the two groups that were having a problem. The two groups that were having a problem were Jew and Gentile, and there's this division between them. One of the ways, again, in the strict context, we're talking about strict context and then a broader context, but in the strict context, one of the ways that God is to be glorified is if Jew and Gentile begin to get along in the church so that the division between them ends up dissolving. And so there is no division between Jew and Gentile. And then they wake up one day and Jew and Gentile are in the body of Christ together functioning in unity. So in Paul's letter to the Ephesians so far, and it'll continue to be our main idea, Paul is arguing that Jews and Gentiles should function in unity in the body of Christ. Chapter 1 Stress the truth that God is worthy to be praised. Remember that long sentence, 3 through 14? Three times, three primary times, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is worthy to be praised. He's done all these incredible things for us. We should fall on our knees in reverent respect and worship Him. In chapter 2, Paul discussed our new position in Christ. Remember, in the first 10 verses, he discussed it from a, from a, a personal or an individual level. In the last part of the chapter, he discussed it from a corporate level. But one of the things that flows through actually both parts of that is the idea that we're there in the body of Christ by grace. I got there by grace through faith. You got there by grace through faith. But we're all there because of God's grace. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in his mercy. But God loved us, being rich in mercy because of his great love, us with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. 
in the heavenly places, by grace you have been saved. So in chapter 2, we have this main idea of grace that goes along with unity. Then chapter 3, in chapter 3, Paul moves on to describe the mystery. And he describes the mystery himself that Jews and Gentiles, or, or rather Gentiles, are fellow heirs with the Jews, fellow members of the body of Christ, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul is so consumed with this that he prays that we would be strengthened by God's power to live in accordance with what is known to be his will. And that is summed up in one word, unity. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever.